Hello and welcome to the holiday 2022 bonus episode of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm the publications editor for the International Horn Society, and I am so excited to share this archival audio with you. Um, this is a lecture that the great British horn player Alan Civil gave at the 1972 International Horn Symposium in Bloomington, Indiana at Indiana University. So this audio is uh, 50 years old, and uh you know, you can read a little bit more about Alan Civil, although he probably doesn't need very much introduction. He was um, a larger-than-life figure in his playing and his personality, as you'll hear from this uh, lecture that he gave. Uh, it's titled, <laughs> Are Conductors Afraid of Horn Players? And um, I think it's the perfect thing for this time of year. It's uh, it's cheerful. It's it's uh, fun. I think uh, there are many, many interesting tidbits of information to be found, as well as getting to hear uh, Alan, as well as uh, Shirley uh, Hopkinson will play some duets at the end that were composed by um, Alan himself. So I hope that this uh, episode brings some uh, light and joy into your uh, December month. And uh, here is some archival audio by Alan Sibyl. I've just been told that I have to tell you why, but I... I thought everyone would have known this, uh, this common fact. I mean, this is, to tell you, is about as unnecessary as Ib wearing an identification tab on here. <laughs> Incidentally, when I woke up this morning and put on my shirt again, I found that overnight an unknown assailant had made me into Horace Fitzpatrick. Well, in order to corroborate my um, definite yes to why conductors are really afraid of horn players, I'll have to tell you a little bit about my life story. Uh, that is, I'll tell you the first 43 years of it, because that's about as far as I've got. And uh, it started somewhere 66 miles north of London, in a town, a nice old country town called Northampton. Uh, this was very famous for boots and shoes. Uh, considering 66 miles is no distance at all from London, uh, it was completely unmusical, this town. It's uh, unmusical, but not uncivilized, which, of course, being my name, I've had to live with all the corny jokes about civil by names, but maybe not by nature, I don't know. Uh, I'm a third-generation horn player, which sounds pretty frightful. And my family, and that is all the brass, uh, all the male members of the family, were all brass players. I grew up thinking that everyone played a brass instrument. I had uncles Ernest and Harry, and they were trombones, and a couple played the trumpet, and it really was quite, uh, quite the thing. And at one time in the theatre orchestra in Northampton, I think there were four. My father and three uncles were all sitting in the same orchestra. It's quite a record. Well, of course, uh, my beginnings on the horn, uh, after a rather uh, disastrous um, career as a concert pianist when I was eight, I think. Um, I then I was in the choir for some time, and then I can't remember actually 
starting to play the horn, but around about the age of eight and nine, I know that I was sort of tootling away. It was a very easy instrument in those days, when eight and nine, you'd play anything, you know. Um, I used to play an old instrument, an old battered old French horn, which was very um, ancient and lots of uh, air leaking out of everywhere. And uh, I played in the local orchestra, very poor orchestra, of course. And uh, I also played, my main playing in those days took place on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings is very strange uh, in Britain, generally. The band used to rehearse at half past ten, and this band was a remnant of British Legion chaps from after the First World War, when they all came home and they'd all been playing, and they decided to form the British Legion, which was the veterans, army veterans. And this band um, was what we call a military band. It's similar, of course, to your concert bands. And the, the uh, average age at that time, I suppose, was, say, 72, 73, you know. Um, people used to have little glasses down with their teeth in. Um, really, they, a lot of the old chaps found it easy to play without their teeth. Um, and it was a wonderful band because they rehearsed on Sunday mornings at half past ten. Um, they played things through once only. The librarian would get out a program of marches, overtures, selections, and they were just... My uncle conducted this band, um, and he was afraid of me too. Um, this band rehearsed at half past ten, once through everything, no questions asked, no one would say, excuse me, should I have a bit... That was completely out. And the glory of the band was this. The public uh, licensing hours on Sunday are from 12 o'clock until 2, 7 until 10. You cannot get a drink legally before 12 o'clock on a Sunday in England. So the wonderful thing about this band, it rehearsed in, at the top of a working men's club. And the first thing you did at half past 10, the door opened, you went and sat on your seat and sat down there, and a woman would come with a tray of about 35 pints of beer. And all the beer was on the floor, and you say, right, uh, overture, uh, something, poet and peasant, straight through, beer up there, beer up there. I thought this was quite uh, disgraceful at first, at the age of nine, because it used to be 36 beers and one ginger pop coming up. <laughs> Very embarrassing, actually. But uh, I then grew up in this sort of band. Uh, by the way, the thing was that the pub then officially opened at 12 o'clock and uh, I would be playing the horn parts, and there'd be a stampede to get a drink at 12 o'clock, a legal drink, you see. The fact that there was so much around from half past 10 to 12 was not considered good, but the legal drink from 12 till 2 was marvellous. So I used to be left playing sort of but, 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 when everyone had gone out, you see. So that was my, um, my experience as a sort of musician in those early days, and my repertoire, I hated the Beethoven horn sonata. Um, I thought it was terribly easy. I really did. I thought, what a silly piece of music. You know, there's nothing hardly chromatic or anything like that. Silly piece of music. Uh, I had no worries about the Beethoven Sonata at all. I thought it was a, dread, a stupid piece of music. I just hated it. And we had to play it quite a lot because, the, naturally, my pianist friend used to love to play it because it was all, it really is, fat for the piano and, and, and awkward for the horn. 
And it's only since my professional days that I thought, my goodness, what a horrible child I must have been to think like that. Because it's, you know, now I have uh, thoughts about starting it, just the first two notes. Very difficult. But that was that. I did Mozart concertos. I played, uh, I played once for um, uh, a, blind, a deaf and dumb club. Imagine, you know. I played the horn solos. Uh, it was a great success, I think. And I went struggling through. I, I, schooling wasn't too important. I, I didn't really like school very much. I was all sort of messing around. Uh, in my slim days, I was a, a high jump champion. That's quite good, isn't it? Um, what else was there? Yes. And then, of course, uh, these were the early days of, of the war. And uh, I had to uh, think about registering for military service. But before that, of course, I had a lucky break. My father was giving me lessons, but he had been called up and he was in the army in um, uh, Egypt or somewhere. And uh, the BBC Symphony Orchestra had been evacuated due to wartime measures to a neighbouring town, Bedford, 21 miles away from Northampton. And um, Aubrey Brain, of course, was the kingpin, and uh, he was the only horn player that ever mattered in those days. And I wrote a schoolboy letter to Mr. Brain, French Horn, BBC, Bedford. And it miraculously got to him, even though it was just a brief address. I said, uh, would, he be, would he be delighted to, to teach me? You know, this was the attitude, really. It was awful when I look back at it. Um, and he wrote back saying, yes, he would. If I could come to Bedford every so often, once a week, between the, um, rehearse, his rehearsal and concert, he'd, he'd teach me, you see. So, my means of getting to Bedford was a bicycle, 21 miles, in the blackout. With a complete blackout, no lights, and your headlamps on your bicycle course had to be very dim. And this awful lane going to Bedford, and, uh, and of course, carrying a, a French horn, I used to strap it to the crossbar of the bicycle. And uh, I think that's why I walk a bit funny these days, you know. <laughs> I'm sure that must be the reason. Uh, and I went to Bedford, and that was my first occasion with Aubrey and having these lessons. And then, of course, my registration into the army. I thought, now, the worst thing you can do is to uh, wait and get called up, because you might then be drafted into some place that you don't like. Uh, you may, I mean, I wanted, obviously, to join some sort of band and play. So, anyway, I, as my children say, what did you do in the war, Daddy? Well, I tell you, well, I, I fought, and, uh, and I fought, but I still had to go. Um, <laughs> I, I was a volunteer. I was a volunteer. I thought, now, I must get into some sort of band. Now, there's all the guards' bands. And uh, before I get there, I'll tell you a little story about buying my first instrument which uh, was a touring band coming to Northampton. Uh, I met the horn player, and he, he had an instrument for sale, which was seven pounds or something like that. It was a lot of money for me in those days. Seven pounds multiplied by two, 260, you know, that sort of price. And I saved up enough money, and I eventually bought this horn, which had, it was a Boozy and Hawks instrument, and on the bell there was an engraving, rather nice engraving, of a leak you know, the vegetable, a leek, and underneath that, W-G, 
So I thought, oh, that must be uh, somebody's initials, you know, who? Who plays the horn? W.G. No, no, they didn't bother about that. Well, then hard times came years later, and I had, was, had to go and sell this horn. Uh, and I went along to Paxman's, and I said, uh, would you like to buy an instrument? He said, uh, where'd you get it from? I said, what do you mean? I, was, I bought it a long time ago. Oh, he said, you know it's been stolen, don't you? I said, no, not at all. I said, how do you know? He said, well, it was stolen from the Welsh Guards Band, WG, and the leak is their emblem, you see. This is, I, I didn't know this, but it had been stolen about 1922. And this was my first experience, and uh, I've been very careful with instruments ever since that day. Uh, so the point was, I still retained the instrument, and he told me that it was worthless, and I think I sold it for about five pounds. The following week, it was in the shop, all beautifully patched up for 33 pounds. That's pretty clever, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, um, that was that, and then I had to join up. So I, instead of jo joining the guards, um, I thought I'd join a band that had a relatively good orchestra. And the Royal Regiment of Artillery had such an orchestra, about 105 musicians, and wartime measures, you've got a lot of good musicians in the service bands, naturally. So I played the horn, and uh, I wrote to the lieutenant, who was called a lieutenant in Britain, uh, musical director or director of music, I wrote to him saying, would he like to hear me, you know? Can I join your band? I've got to get, going to get called up. So I had to travel down to Woolwich, which is a part of London to the east along the river, and uh, I was shown into the office where he said, uh, ah, Civil, hmm, yes. How long have you been playing? I said, oh, since I was about nine or ten. Oh, yes, you're pretty good, are you? I said, oh, yes, yes, yes. I said, well, play me the scale of F-sharp minor melodic. I said, beg your pardon? Blaming the scale, two and a half octaves, F sharp minor melodic. I thought, my gosh, this is ridiculous. So I played F minor melodic, not F sharp. And he said, jolly good, very good. <laughs> so then he said, have you got a good ear? I said, well, yes, I think so, yes. Uh, he says, and he got a pencil, a lampshade, a metal army lampshade went, Dong! I said, what note's there? I said, not notes. I said, I can hear about three or four notes there. <laughs> oh, he said, no, you obviously haven't got a very good ear. He said, that note, he said, is B-flat. Oh, I said, well, thank you. Sorry about that. I didn't. <laughs> Years afterwards, I found that the band secretary had actually changed that lampshade, and it wasn't B-flat at all. It was something like a C natural, you know. The other lampshade had been B-flat, and this was the test, so no one knew. Um, it's, it's wonderful, really, what they get up to in the, in the army. Anyway, I had thoughts of going to the military school of music, which is called Nella Hall. Uh, I never actually went there, but I had thoughts of going there and becoming a bandmaster or something like that, you see. Uh, of course, you know, as a bandmaster, you take about 15% of every service engagement, and, and the, then about 60% goes into the band funds, and about 10% is divided into 36 parts. It's very, very good, really. And I joined this, this band, and the benefits, of course, by joining it was near enough to London to keep in touch with Aubrey Brain and still study with him. And also, being in London, opportunities of doing a bit of freelance work, theatre work, and all this sort of thing. And incidentally, the old Nella Hall business is strange. They had, at this time, a director of music who was um, a lieutenant colonel, and uh, they had a system of fines. If you missed a note, the sergeant major would say, right, civil, click, and it was two, two shillings, you know, at the end of the week. 
fine for actually, and all this went into the director of music's uh, pocket, but highly illegal, but done all over the British Army. Um, now, I um, never went there, and I, as I told you the other day, I, d I wasn't too keen on marching, and I used to stand on this wing. In front of me was a trombone player who used to walk in between the, the beats. <laughs> sort of bump and jump. jump. It was always on the, on the, on the half-beats, you see. And in front of him was a Susan, a tuba player, Bombardon player, who used to always march like this, you see, swinging along. And I was next, you see, and on the right-hand side, um, it was a very dangerous side, and with these people, one swinging this way, and one sort of marching out of step, I used to, couldn't keep in line with these people at all, and I used to hit nearly every lamppost <laughs> marching along. You know, it really was awful. And, uh, anyway, must going to, the, going to the story about my director of music, who had complete, completely turned deaf. Uh, on one occasion, we were going to do a concert with, with um, Rossini Overture. Uh, Rossini Overture. Not a, it's not a horn part, of course. It's, um, that one. Silk and Ladder. That's it. And uh, he had a record of this on a 78-old record. And he said, Cyril, uh, he said, do you know anything about uh, gramophones? He said, mine's a bit strange. He said, would you go and have a look at it? So I went up to this time, you see. The oboe player playing this was terribly worried about this. And uh, he said, it's so fast. He said, I've heard a record of Toscanini. He said, it's so fast, I can't play this at all. Well, we, when we did the first rehearsal on this, we were very surprised because the speed that Geary, our director of music, took really was... We thought, this is nice, it's a lovely rehearsal tempo, maybe, until we get the notes. But it stayed like this forever. He never went any faster. And going over to his quarters to find out this, if I could repair his gramophone, I found that this gramophone with the Toscanini record on, the spring was so weak that the thing was going round. He was copying Toscanini, as he thought, going at this speed. He's a very fine musician, I can assure you. Um, uh, anyway, that was... Uh, the problem, this is bringing me to my silly title, why conductors um, are really afraid of horn players. If you were in the army with such a conductor, who was a musical nincompoop, <laughs> but had on his shoulder a lot of spam that could put you into the front line, literally, within 24 hours, you could be really fighting. I mean, I didn't join the army for anything like that, you know. Um, he could make your life quite a misery, and uh, with a lot of people trying to get into a band, of course, it was you had to keep your nose clean, as they say. And uh, I became terrified of this man, really absolutely terrified. Uh, what with the fines of cracking notes and paying sixpence here and ninepence here, and you had to collect your money at the end of the week and hand it all back again. Quite awful. But the great thing about the band was the getting through a tremendous repertoire. It had a wonderful library. After all, the band was formed in 1762 as an octet, surprising enough. Two oboes, two clarinets, two horns, and two bassoons. It was formed uh, when the British Army were fighting in Germany, 
And the articles for the band are quite interesting to read because the horn players always got more money in those days than any of the others. Uh, a thing which is uh, not always the case these days. But this was 1762. And they had to be able, all the players, except the horn players, had to be able to play string instruments as well. And then the band became a gigantic size, 105 and all the rest of it. And we played this wonderful library they had, first edition, Spore Symphonies. How many people played a symphony by Spore? Hardly anyone. Weber's symphonies. Things like that. All the Mozart symphonies. Every one. Played every one. Uh, all the Haydn's. Every single bit of music. Wonderful library. And it was here that I was detailed. We were detailed in the army. I was detailed to play Mozart's concerto in E-flat. Um, just like that, you know. Do you know Mozart's concerto in E-flat? I said, which one? So don't ask questions. The one in E-flat. <laughs> and all the time you're doing this, you are standing like this, you know. So I had to play Mozart's concerto in E-flat, which turned out to be the third concerto. And uh, I did some sort of ridiculous cadenza, finishing with the trill, which our dear director of music couldn't resolve. I mean, he couldn't bring the band in after the trill. Although I tried to make it very obvious, so I went bum. No band, no band at all, you see. And then bum. <laughs> so I had to report to my dear director of music. He said, "What the hell do you think you're doing? You're making a fool of me." I said, "What do you mean making a fool?" I said, okay. seven days extra fatigue for playing a Mozart concerto." Really good old days, that. I remember playing it very well. Then, of course, came my first experience of conducting. Um, there's a band arrangement of the Toccata and Fugue D minor, the Bach organ Toccata, which is a bit awkward. I don't know whether you do it here in the bands and things, but you have this uh, start of the... Um, we all know that. But to conduct it's a bit awkward for band. And our dear director couldn't conduct this at all. He could do that, and it would be ragged, of course, but he couldn't get da 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 and he didn't know what to do then. So he always went da 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 And I just sat there, sort of just thinking of other things, and suddenly, I suddenly looked up and he said, I suppose you can do better. I said, well, sorry, what, uh, what is that? He said, you're laughing there, you're smirking away there. He said, you can do better. Come along, come along, come on, you can get there. I said, I don't want to. And he just thrust, uh, put a baton in my hand and said, you know, come on, let's see you do it then. You're so clever, you're so clever, let's see you do it. So I stood there and I'd never done this before. You know, I just sort of looked at it and uh, wondered. And I sort of just, all the band were keyed up, ready to play. And I sort of just went, they went, da da da, everyone was together. And with this wonderful gift that I had, I politely handed the bat on back and said, thank you very much, and walked back to my seat. Um, so I started in the Royal Artillery as a gunner. That's the rank. Uh, I did reach the dizzy heights of Bombardier. 
and I finished up a court-martial. That's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> uh, we had a wonderful Sergeant Major, too. Regimental Sergeant Major. They must be the same in the world. They're a funny breed, you know. They, they, they're usually highly intelligent idiots. <laughs> and our Sergeant Major often had to conduct the band uh, in the director's absence and also introduce the programmes. His knowledge of any foreign language was quite amazing. For instance, we had a, there was a piccolo solo called The Bird in the Wood, Oiseau du Bois, which he used to say, now we're going to play The Lousy Boy. <laughs> the selection, uh, Les Cloches de Cornville, by Plankett, was always called The Clocks of Cornwall. And on one glorious occasion in North Africa, with hundreds and hundreds of troops all sitting out on the sand, the sergeant major had to introduce the program without, of course, microphones and this sort of thing, and in his regimental voice he had to announce the Tchaikovsky Overture 1812. And he announced it and said, And now the band are going to play Tchaikovsky's Overture 1812! <laughs> Now, of course, my, comes to my uh, attempt to play in serious uh, orchestras. I deputised, I did theatre work, and uh, I did a spot in playing in a jazz band, playing the piano rather badly. Um, and when I was quite young, I suppose 19, I was suddenly telephoned by the London Philharmonic Orchestra, actually, who had had some sort of crises with their horn players. They'd all left or something like that. And it was a very important concert with... Sir Malcolm Sargent conducting, and it was a horn player's program. It was the, the dreaded Oberon to start with. It was the lot of the uh, Midsummer Night's Dream music. It was um, Chike Five. It really was a horn player's program. And uh, the orchestral manager rang me up and said, "Could I come and do this concert?" He said, "We've tried everyone else." He said, "Which puts you in a nice, uh, <laughs> makes you feel very important." So I went along there, uh, red-faced, very, very slim in those days I was, it's not a tragedy looking at my old photographs. Um, I went along there and uh, I thought I could play these things. It's a little bit tense, obviously, but you're not really tense at 19, you know, it's a bit later you get these things happening to you. Um, and uh, I thought somebody would say, well, this is Mr. Civil who's come all the way from Woolwich and nobody said anything at all, they just didn't talk, you know, funny old days in the orchestra felt rather out of it. And then we played these things, and Sargent was a great one for recapping after the concert by saying, uh, now, uh, after rehearsal, by saying, now, Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, I go off, and then I come back, and I stand in with Mr. Arpius. Now, the order of these pieces, let me see now, there's the overture, and there's the scherzo, there's the intermezzo, and there's the nocturne and the wedding march in that order. Everybody got that? Yes, right. Yeah. He said, now, uh, I should come on. And to the flute player, he said, Mr. Aiden, he said, for the scherzo, uh, I shall signify, signal you to stand up and take a bow. And horn, horn, you see, horn, if your part comes off, I'll stand you up as well. <laughs> now, how do you think you feel playing the nocturne like that? I wasn't even Mr. Horn, I was just horn, you see. Wonderful. <laughs> So, I was fortunate to, to have this sort of 
grounding and also very fortunate to be in London and catch the tail end of the, the great conductors, uh, Kusevitsky and Grunewalter, Furtwängler, the Sabata. And of course, after my dear director of music, who I was terrified of, I found these gentlemen absolutely marvellous. I couldn't understand when all the old timers said, oh, Kusevitsky, he's a nice god, he's a... Dear, dear, dear. I said, marvellous, you know, it's wonderful. I mean, you don't have to be frightened of these people at all, do you? I said, surely they must be frightened of us. Said, oh, no, he said, they couldn't care about you. Said, no. I said, they must be. I mean, after, I mean, they're nice, you know, they ask you to play it. I mean, they're only telling you the things that you, you know, that are right, you know. They don't uh, tell you horrible. He said, well, you're, you're very young, aren't you? He said, you'll, you'll learn. Of course, I have learned the hard way. But having caught all these tail ends of these conductors, uh, my first job after... Uh, getting out of the army was with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra when I had to go along to do an audition with Sir Thomas Beecham at his house. Um, I played, of course, with the orchestra and uh, I played first horn, but I still had to give this audition. And I went along to his house where he decided to accompany me on the piano, uh, which was very interesting. He said, what are you going to play? I said, I'd like to play the uh, the uh, Strauss first concerto, Sir Thomas. Oh, very well then, right. Mm, off we go then, sort of bash, 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 chord of E flat with about sort of three fingers tied with a rubber band round there. Oh, wonderful. So I played. Right, cut the tutti out, he said. Let's get to the first solo. Finish the end of this. Right, slow movement now. Now, I'd never practiced it this way before, you know. This, this was asking for trouble. I had no rest whatsoever. Last movement, right off we go. I relied on all these uh, tutties to, to breathe. I wanted to get the, the, the juice out of these things, you know. They, they collect. Anyway, uh, I was accepted and I went into the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And he was the greatest man to work for. He was a wonderful old chap. He inherited quite a considerable fortune from these Beecham's pills. Uh, he spent his entire fortune on music and then went around the world spending everybody else's entire fortune. <laughs> it takes a bit of doing. But he did a lot of good for English music. And he, it would be a strange chap, you know, he's very amateurish in a way. He'd be sitting on the platform, as I told friends the other day, waiting for the second half of the concert, the Eroica Symphony. Sitting there, the horns, waiting there. And uh, he would come or oh, the, the orchestral manager would go from the side of the stage. <laughs> Thomas wants you in his room. So what now? We can't go off the platform now. He wants you in his room with the music, with the parts. And we're waiting to play. So we'd go into Sir Thomas's room, creeping off the stage. You feel quite awful, don't you, doing that? With the parts. He said, oh, gentlemen of the horns, he said, sitting there in his uh, dressing gown, smoking a huge cigar in the interval with a large brandy. Wonderful. He said, I've decided to rephrase this funny little tune you have in scherzo. I've decided, well, the, where's my pencil? Blue pencil all over hired orchestral parts. It was wonderful with Beecham. He ruined everybody's parts. They could never hand them back to the library. He made a wonderful library of music that way. Uh, he then said, I don't think I can mark all these parts. I tell you what I'll do, he said, I'll sing it to you, and I'll sing it to you, and you know what I mean. So he said, 
It's the conditions, the circumstances you play them in. I mean, Obram, what is it? Do, re, mi. My piano, it's wonderful. Dum, dum, dum. You know, there are three, three white notes. Yeah, lovely. And when you think of the problems it involves when you're sitting on a platform with Beecham, it was always a problem. He knew it was difficult. He was not going to help you with this. He was going to make it more difficult. He took always a long time getting onto the platform. He liked absolute silence when he came onto the platform. And he would come on uh, in his older, uh, advanced years, with one leg sort of in 2-4 and the other one in 6-8. <laughs> looking around like this to see what the horn player was doing. <laughs> he then came up to the rostrum and instead of getting on with it, he would take out his spectacles. Always bow to the orchestra first, by the way. Good sign. Always bow to the orchestra first. Take out his spectacles and clean them. This seemed like three hours, you know. You're waiting there, holding this ridiculous piece of tubing, trying to... wondering what's going to happen. Looking around, a few words, maybe for the concertmaster. Good audience tonight, isn't it? Very good, yes. Yes, yes. How's your wife? Very good, yes. Let me meet her, and you? Yes. This went on. Quite wonderful, really, to have this. It doesn't have any more. Uh, usually they say, how's my wife, don't they? Conductors. <laughs> Yes, he, he um, made a thing of it. And then he'd get on the rostrum and look around, and just as he began to start, somebody might cough, and he'd go, Oh, shut up, you... Shut up! Shut up, you fools! <laughs> Wonderful. Everybody laughed, except the horn player. <laughs> no joke. You can't laugh. You mustn't laugh before you play over. I mean, does things here. You've got to, you've got to, it's, it's murder, waiting. And Beecham, although he was good in lots of ways, insisted that the horn player followed the beat, which I absolutely refused to do, having experienced this. And he, this beat was always this sort of beat, like that. Now, I developed a wonderful knack of never being able to start on that beat. I can only start on my own steam with a thing like that. And my last concert with the Royal Philharmonic before I left to join another orchestra with Beecham was Oberon. And, you know, I thought, I wonder if I dare do this. As Beecham was coming along in this wonderful film, and he put one foot on the rostrum, I went, ah! And I've never seen pick up a baton so quickly that it couldn't have been used. I played it. I had no fear. It's like the waiter on his last day. He tipped the soup over someone, you know. I finished it. I oh, and I had nothing to lose, you see. Anyway, that was my um, uh, playing Oberon, soft entry. If you have Schubert uh, C major, and you, you've got accents, which is uh, something to go by if you play it. Little accents on these, conductors like to hear them. But that at least is something to grab to. Whereas Oberon, 
is it's it's got to be a distant horn call. It's three notes. It should be so simple. Go rain me. Maybe a little bit of crescendo in it, and then a diminuendo on a duff note, C sharp. Isn't that a horrible note? And as you diminuendo, it's either going up or down. <laughs> this is a problem. Starting that. That's easy now. Put me on a concert platform, it becomes different. But I try to approach everything in the way I've just played it to you just now. This is where, naturally, we're nervous. You ever met a, a horn player who isn't nervous that can play? It's part of the act, it's part of the job to be uh, nervous to the extent where, where it's going to make it artistically beautiful. If you hear a horn player that isn't nervous and he has all the, the uh, flair and the arrogance in the world, it won't sound very nice, I can assure you. Um, now, the nervous section of playing Oberon comes purely from this being sit, sat in this, these conditions of just sitting there, waiting. You know how difficult it is to produce a note uh, under these circumstances. You know, the whole face, tongue, body feels different, you know. And if you miss that first note of Oberon, you feel like going home, don't you? I mean, it's one of those things. You can never redeem yourself however beautiful you play for the rest of the concert, that will hang around you for years. This is the awful things about horn playing. So I try to put myself into the, this feeling of, well, I mean, when those fellows went to the moon, wonderful thing, but none of them can play Oberon. Isn't that amazing? None of them. And here am I, and I think I can play it, and I don't really want to go to the moon. <laughs> and all the famous people in the world, they can't play Oberon. And you can. Now, isn't that marvellous? <laughs> yeah. So, let's, I think in a, it's just in a rather um, silly way, it's bad to feel, so, not an arrogant way, but I put myself into the picture, as it were, and say, this is me playing. And first of all, I'm playing for me. Even before I'm playing for the composer. I'm sorry, that's the way I feel. I'm playing for me, for the standard I know that I should be able to keep up. Then, I'm secondly playing for my colleagues who are the, the critics and the people that we all play for. Whenever we play, it's our colleagues we think about more than any other people. And they're the people who uh, sh we shouldn't be afraid to play to. We, and yet we are sometimes more frightened to play in front of our colleagues than, than uh, anyone else. Thirdly, I suppose the conductor might come in it somewhere. You know, we possibly play for him, possibly. And after him, fourthly, probably come in the audience. You know, we don't think, think about the audience. But it's for ourselves that we should play first, before anything else. We, have a, we know our standards. It's no good saying, uh, I'm thinking about uh, uh, Weber, what a wonderful composer he was, and isn't he wonderful to write music like this? And you think about the beauty of all this thing and play it, and it sounds horrible. You know, if this does happen if you think too deeply about, about music and think of all the wonders of the thing. Now, put it in the other extreme, that's the soft entry. How about the loud entry, when you've got to uh, possibly stand waiting in other circumstances? I'm talking now about, for instance, the Siegfried Horn Call. Uh, you may be in the pit, in the orchestral pit, where you come up onto the backstage and play it. I prefer not to sit in it, but I don't mind this, but I prefer to come on, Fred, and stand in the wings and 
usually take a new club or something like this and toot away. But in some opera houses, it's very difficult to, to play without actually being heard. And you've got to, uh, you've got this awful entrance of C, G, which has got to be played forte, not fortissimo. You've got to play it forte, and it's got to be there. Now, nor under normal circumstances, I don't think I would have been talking for half an hour before it, and this doesn't make a difference. So let's not apologize for the plan yet. But the embouchure has got to be adapted as soon as you play that first note. Having got that one over, you look around where the seat is, one stage, wondering what he's done, and he's trying to perform that gig. He does this, and then, probably maybe, play that one now. These three then, is Marlock, he's there, he's walking over here with this horn, looking for the birds and all the rest of it, one what he's done. And then, once again, he does this. Now, once again, never follow him, otherwise you can have quite easy. Again. <laughs> time is terrible. By this time, three stagehands have come up behind you looking over your shoulder. <laughs> that a difficult instrument, mate. Is that a difficult instrument? <laughs> the next entry is the cantabile one. He puts a diminuendo before that air. Keep on. Oh, oh man. You look around again. Never diminuendo, walk back into the wings and play it louder, it sounds marvellous. <laughs> then you have your last chance while Siegfried has his last chance. This is the difficult one. This is definitely six to four of the field, any bets, you know, this is your last big chance. So, and it's a long breath too, of course, no chance to breathe. So, let's think about it. Again. 
what I intend to do now is to ask Shirley to come along and um, play this horn because uh, I think we're okay at the time, yes, just about to play some duets that I wrote purely from the technical point of view. Um, you know, our Nikolai's are old-fashioned duets. Which it's, it gets, they're good, but this awful business of um, lots of tonics and dominants and fifths and all the rest of it can get a little boring. And have you noticed the wonderful way in which you cannot play any of these duets without turning over the parts? Um, you know, you have no chance to turn over the pages. Wonderful. These should be reprinted, and all publishers, anyone here, should take note of this, because this awful business of stop starting is dreadful. We need two parts and two music stands. Now, the duets I've written, we'll talk about them. Uh, first of all, uh, they are written with the, the idea of not concertizing these pieces. They're, they're, here to, they're there to make you try and develop some sort of technique. It's written in a suite. You can perform it as a concert. And the first one is a little prelude, a rhythmic thing, which uh, try, trying to keep the two horn players thinking, although there's a lot of offbeats there. Um, I'll talk about each one in turn. Um, we'd like to sit or stand. <laughs> well, I don't know really. I suppose it would be We can sit. For um, you want to play first? <laughs> the problem is, of course, that Shirley hasn't been playing for the last 20 minutes, 40 minutes. So we'll see what she sounds like, too. <laughs> so this is called a little pre uh, preamble, <coughs> and it's uh, mainly...
a technical one that's rhythmic. Stands too high now, I expect. <laughs> uh, that's a, one of these technical ones which involves the second horn, a lot of third finger work from low D flat over to, to B flat. It's very, very difficult. It doesn't work at all. And it, and it swaps parts all the time as well. The next one is a bit awkward. It's a sort of Siciliano, more of a lyrical style. And uh, the point of this one is a bit, uh, it's a bit uh, lengthy. It's a bit high too, isn't it? Okay, this is the Siciliano. Siciliano. <laughs> involves uh, a lot of awkward fingering, backward fingering, a little cadenza on quite high, few chords, um, handless, uh, muting, uh, 
Anything else, yes. Oh, yes. And uh, a sort of a, a, a mord in which it sounds like a cracked note. This is very clever. <laughs> I'm running out of excuses this week. You know. <laughs> okay. Thank <coughs> you. cadenza where the all the tricks are employed the spacing of the two horns are two octaves apart Thank you. 
which is complicated. It's a six-eight rhythm, but it contains uh, three eighth beats over the bar. So instead of da 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 da, it's one bap dip bap bap dip da da dip da da da. This sort of rhythm. We try to practice without our feet going like this. Uh, it helps to beat your feet within your shoe. I can assure you. It uh, also has some awkward hand stopping too. And also one other point. While I'm playing this sort of rhythm, Shirley is playing off the beat. Now, if you listen to, if I listen to that, which I usually do, of course, I should lose myself. This is really a question where each player has to have blinkers on and not listen to the other, otherwise you'll be together. Having said that, this is going to be terrible to try and put it into practice.